Welcome to Last First State Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 458 with Dr. Diana Hill, using psychological flexibility to improve your relationships. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner. Welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe that a woman of value naturally attracts respect in life and love. If you want to feel more valued and increase your confidence and show up more authentically in your life, I wrote a book just for you. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it's filled with 30 tips and exercises and stories to help you step more fully into your value. And it's available now on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. This week's tip from the book on becoming a woman of value is step number 20, which is adapt a positive mindset. And I'm sure this will come up today in my conversation with Dr. Diana Hill. A positive mindset is so important when you are looking at your life. We often go into this whole victim mode of I am I am just, this is the way I was born or, you know, I'm just doomed. I had crazy parents. So of course my life is going to be out of control. And, but when you have a more open and positive mindset, you can really overcome a lot of these stories, which we're going to actually talk about in today's episode. And before I bring Diana on to the show, I invite you to join my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. And it is a fabulous place for women over 40 who are looking to grow and have a positive space to explore relationships. This is not a place to come and vent and just bash on men and dating and complain. It's a place to grow. So if you're interested in that, join us at your last first date. And now for my guest, Dr. Diana Hill. She's a clinical psychologist, a podcaster, and an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. It's a cutting-edge, evidence-based approach to living with psychological flexibility. Her new book that she co-authored with Dr. Debbie Sorensen is ACT Daily Journal. It offers an eight-week program that breaks psychological flexibility into practical steps that guide you in living a life that aligns with your values. How awesome is that? Welcome to the show, Diana. Thank you for having me, Sandy. And I I love to hear you talking about values and self stories, because that's one of the things that gets in the way of us living our values. So I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. Yeah. So tell us what is ACT and the research supporting its effectiveness? Yeah, well, ACT, it's sort of said as one word, ACT, is a, a modern approach to psychology. And a lot of times people think about therapies as helping you um, with diagnoses or problems that you have. But ACT is really for both people that are struggling with mental struggles, but also people just wanna live more fully. And it uses evidence-based approaches based on behavioral psychology in combination with some wisdom of um, acceptance and values and opening up to help you build uh, a life that's, like you said, more aligned with what you care about and continue to pursue what you care about in the, the areas that matter most to you. And there's a lot of research on ACT, so I can give you some of the areas where it's been shown beneficial for if you want. Sure. 
Yeah, so it's it's been shown everywhere from uh, relationships. This is a relationship podcast. So when people are psychologically flexible in their relationships, which means they have sort of the skill set of being able to be open and present and oriented towards their values, they have greater sexual satisfaction in their relationships. Their relation, they're able to um, be more satisfied with both themselves and their partners. And they also show more emotional supportiveness with their partners. And then you see less negative conflict and uh, physical aggression and other types of anxiety that are associated in relationships. So it's positive for relationships, but being psychologically flexible is also helpful for maintaining health behaviors, decreasing anxiety. Uh, It's beneficial for adapting to change as all of us have been doing, especially in these um, recent times. Yeah. And it's just, I love, I love what you said about um, that when, when you are psychologically flexible, you are more satisfied with yourself and your partner. You have the bandwidth to be there for your partner when you've practiced your own self-care and, um, and, and you're able to really create partnership, which a lot of people really struggle with because they're, they're lacking, they're depleted. So I, I just, I think this is such an important topic and um, I'm excited to dive deeper. Yeah. And I think being present with your partner is be, being able to be present even when it's difficult or even when your head is saying all sorts of things like self-critic in there um, or commenting, our heads are constantly chattering away. And so ACT offers these six core processes or skills that can help us orient towards our values in those moments that matter most to us, but also in the difficult times because relationships, yes, we wanna be present with our partner when things are good, but we also wanna be present with ourselves and our, and our partner when it's, it's challenging. And, and oftentimes we can get derailed from being the person we wanna be. And these six core processes help us with that. So it's less about getting rid of all of those negative feelings and more about being able to continue to orient towards the person that you wanna be in your relationships. Yeah, and especially you mentioned like when things are not going well, that's that's where people, where the rubber meets the road, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, how somebody is in crisis really says a lot and the skills that we have or don't have make such a huge difference. I know in my own marriage, that was one of the undoings of the marriage was we were, unfortunately, I gave birth to a, a sick child, the first, my first son. And um, we didn't know what he had until about a year later when we found out it was genetic. And my husband fell apart, really couldn't handle the crisis. And I just became father, mother, medical expert, and took on everything because that's my nature is just to step up. But over the years, the chasm grew deeper and deeper. And I, you know, I learned a lot in the process about what my contribution was. But I do know that how somebody responds to crisis and to to the hard times, it's easy to be a fair weather friend and a fair weather partner. It's harder to be there when the chips are down. And it's, it's also sort of part of our human nature to avoid and to experientially avoid. So what you're, I mean, what I'm hearing there is that you had this really painful experience where you needed your partner to show up for you and what your partner did in response to that pain was to close off 
Mm-hmm. And that's, we do that. That's what humans are designed to do evolutionarily is to avoid pain. But when we, when we are avoiding discomfort, and it also means that we avoid what we value, then we're doing what's called um, experiential avoidance. And it actually is really problematic in many of our lives. So whether that's, mm, I can't talk about this difficult topic with my partner because I feel shame around it, or it's, Mm, I'm not gonna. You're not gonna bring up something in our, you know, our intimate relationship because it's embarrassing. What we can end up doing is creating that that distance, but also we end up not stepping into moments with our partner that actually could be intimacy building, because intimacy is really this combination of sharing our vulnerability and sharing our values. And right there, and that that example is such a perfect one where you showed up for your for your child how incredibly psychologically flexible of you as a mom to do that, right? To, to step into something that really mattered to you. And I imagine it was not comfortable. And that's what psychological flexibility is about. And even though it's not comfortable, we can get better at being present with discomfort, at opening up, allowing, and um, creating space for our full human experience. For me, what happened over time was I, my armor went up. Um, because I had to protect myself from being the the old the sole person really supporting him and not having support that I needed. So I just kind of armored up around it. So we were both closed off. And I see it now that first of all, I need a different kind of partner. But I also know that if anything like that happened again, I would have the communication skills to be able to be vulnerable and to express myself not in a from a wounded, hurt little child place, but from more of an adult, you know, what I need and how I feel, Mm -hmm. uh, which was totally impossible for me to do then. You know, what I notice about our our tendency in terms of that armoring in relationship is that it can start with, ooh, this is painful, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna avoid. And, and we can avoid in all sorts of ways. One is armoring up. So for some people, they numb out. They numb out with substances or they numb out with technology, right? Or for some people, they numb out by working a lot, right? Avoiding through working too much. And what can happen is as we step further and further away from each other in these moments that really matter, like if we step through that sliding door moment, as John Gottman would say, the moment to, you know, opportunity to connect, it would take us in a different trajectory, but we can also start to develop stories. And our mind, humans have this tendency to create stories about ourselves and create stories about others. And it's really helpful in some situations, right? I wanna be able to create a story about what my day is gonna look like so I can prepare for it, but it can be really unhelpful when we get boxed in by those self stories. So I'd love to, I mean, I'd love to give you sort of an example of some ways to work with a self story. And I'm also even curious, what were some of the stories that came up for you in relationship to your partner or to yourself that created some of that barrier? Uh, yeah, this is a great exercise. And I've done this with my clients because I was so stuck in story. Um, I had a story based on my parents that men don't show up for you. <laughs> it was like, men, men are not going to pull their weight. And so you have to do it all. That was the story. I mean, that was what I experienced at home. My father had was bipolar. And he, he couldn't show up in the way my mother needed him to. So it was a very different kind of experience. But unconsciously, I attracted a partner who didn't show up for me. 
And after my divorce, I kept looking for signs that men didn't show up. And um, it came to a head, act actually. This was, this was my sobering moment. Um, it was my father died suddenly. He was in the hospital, was supposed to go to rehab. And the next day he was coding and he was gone. And so it was a quick, like, get the funeral together. And I showed up, right? Like, that's my job. I show up. And so I'm making all the funeral arrangements, calling the family and getting everything together. And I had been dating somebody at the time. I didn't have the bandwidth to contact him directly about the funeral arrangements and everything. So I sent out a group email to my closest family and friends to just let them know. And he wanted to call me. I, did, I couldn't talk. I, I was talked out. So the next day at the funeral, I didn't see him. Um, he wished me good luck. He told me he was thinking of me and then he didn't show up. So here he was not showing up. <laughs> and uh, I was really upset. And then I get to the Shiva that night at my brother's and he doesn't show up. So that night he texts me, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you. And I'm like, where were you today? And he said, well, I, I, you wanted me there? I, I didn't think you'd want me at the funeral because you hadn't introduced me to your kids yet. And I thought that was important to you. So there was this big misunderstanding, but I was already done because uh, he didn't show up. Like he should have known. <laughs> he should have read my mind. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was a therapist who brought this up to me who said, um, you didn't say what you were not clear. Like you were not clear with him. And this is a story. He didn't show up in other ways and there was, this was not a good relationship, but I was looking and I was trying to prove myself right. So that that's my story. That's such a, a an example of sort of how the self-stories can filter our view. And sometimes what I'll do with clients is I'll have them imagine like their self stories are like binoculars. Like if you imagine, you could even do this with me, Sandy, if you want, it feels kind of goofy, but <laughs> it can actually be really helpful to physicalize what it feels like. So take your hands and put them in front of you like two circles and then hold them up to your eyes like binoculars. And if you move your head and look around your room, you can see like, imagine this is your self story that men don't show up for me. What do you notice about <laughs> your vision? <laughs> Well, it's pretty narrow. Pretty narrow. And is it hard to find a man that's showing up for you when you have these goggles on? <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing some right? nice trees. Like, They're showing up for me. <laughs> yeah. they, they might be right at your side, but you don't even see them, right? Yeah. So our self-stories can filter our view in this way and really give us a narrowed focus. But you can slowly move your hands away from you. And one of the things that we, we, we sometimes do is we just we replace our self-story with a different self story. So for one person, it might be men don't show up for me, but then it's going to be no men always show up for me. That's my other story. That's my positive self story. But positive, sometimes positive self stories actually can box you in too. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an expectation for your partner that they're always going to men always show up for me and, and they don't show up, that's going to be a problem just as much as men's don't show up for me, right? You see the ones that are right. So we we can get more flexible with our self story by moving those hands away from our eyes. And now hold your hands out in front of you. And then allow your hands to just drop to your lap. And here, you can have your story that's going to keep on probably showing up in your life because this is a story that developed as a child or during a traumatic event. Most people, our stories are old. They've been around for a long time. And they may still creep in. But what we can do is hold them as I'm holding my hands in my lap right now. And I can still now move my head around the room. And now how well can you see? Pretty well. There's still no men in my room, <laughs> but I can see pretty well.
but you can also look down and take a look at your story if you mm-hmm. want to sometimes and you can do some self-study around it like okay here's my story to the right my positive one and here's my negative one but you have more space from it you didn't have to cut it out cut off your hands and in act really the approach is that and what we know about the neuroscience of our brains is that we actually are more we don't have delete buttons <laughs> We're not very good at deleting memories or stories or beliefs or even thoughts. And a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to practice deleting things, but that uses up our energy as well. And it's not super effective. There's a good amount of research um, on the paradox of thought control and emotion control that it tends to rebound when you try and get rid of it. But in ACT, we're just creating more space from those stories so that you can look at them more accurately and then you can choose now you don't have your hands in front of your eyes you can see more clearly but you can also move your body in the direction of what you what you want in your life which is sounds like a a relationship where you do have a man that shows up for you but sometimes they're not going to sometimes Mm -hmm. but you can you can also step out of the story when that happens because there may be reasons for that you know yeah yeah and go step into curiosity and asking questions and speaking up and saying what you need and want, which again, most of us don't even know. So it's, it's, yeah, that's great. I love that exercise. Um, just unraveling those stories and just, I think the, the distance, um, I studied neuro-linguistic programming and they do a lot of stepping outside of yourself and that dissonant, the dissociation where you can see things from a different perspective. And I I practiced that actually when my father was getting shock treatments and I, we had to take him as children. We, we were responsible for taking him as an outpatient and that's psychologically traumatizing. If you let it be, I had become so numb to it because I was so used to my father having episodes of depression that I, I brought my computer one day to the hospital and I sat with him and acted like a journalist. And I just had him tell me what was going on in his day. And I, I just took notes while he was talking and his way of expressing himself showed his depression. It showed his personality in a way that I could never have done had I just written a story about my father. But I, as, a, as a journalist, I could be curious. Oh, really? Tell me more about that, Dad. That's interesting. Oh, so you did. You know, and I wasn't taking any of it in. It wasn't personal. And I, it was a great exercise. So it's that kind of stepping outside and looking in really helps you to get some perspective. Yeah. And perspective taking is actually one of those six core things involved mm. in psychological flexibility. And it what it does when we take perspective, we can take perspective on our own selves, right? So right now you're taking perspective on yourself at an earlier time in your life. And I can even feel like a sense of compassion for yourself around that. Mm-hmm. And we can take perspective on others, on others' perspective. What's it like to be behind their eyes, right? Perspective taking helps build empathy. It actually activates parts of your brain that are more lateral as opposed to the midline of your brain, which is more self-referential. So we get out of ego state and more of an interconnected state. And it also helps us with ourselves, I think, a lot. Because when we take perspective on our own lives, we don't um, get so bogged down by them, right? And bogged down by things like self-story and self-criticism 
So perspective taking is a, is a really important skill to develop to help you be able to navigate the challenges of life. And I think in combination with what you were describing there with your dad, which was really being present, which is another one of those six core things associated with psychological flexibility of how am I just present and, and taking in with a beginner's mind the stories that my dad is telling me about his life. And, and that's a really, especially if anyone has experienced loss or experienced um, losing someone, being present is one of the, the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves and that we can give another person. Just being present in our bodies. Right. So hard for, for most of us. We're, yeah. you know, I, I'm always planning the next six steps. And so like I'll be eating breakfast and planning lunch. It's just the way my brain is wired. And for me to just consciously be, especially like if I'm having a conversation with one of my kids at the table, it's such a gift that we can give our give each other, put the phones away, be in front of that person, be present. So so those are the two, the perspective taking, being present. What are what are the others for? Uh, well, values. And I know that's something you are, that's like your specialty, right? Is, is values, uh, right? Yes. Uh, it's in your title. So, um, <laughs> so values are really about actions, verbs and adverbs, the way that you are, not as much about nouns. So for example, a lot of times when I, when I talk with clients about what is it that they value, they'll say things like, I value my health or I value um, uh, my work, but really values are how are you in those domains of your life? How, how, how do you want to be in the domain of health? How do you want to care for your body? What would that look like if I was following you around throughout your day? And I was like, that person really cares about their health. What would you be doing? And they're more about process than they are about outcome. So goals are sort of directions that we can have with an end point, but values never have an end sort of like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. My dad used to tell me uh, when I was a little girl, he told stories and he'd say, painters, it takes so long to paint the Golden Gate Bridge that when they're done, they have to go back and paint it again, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's actually the case for many of us. Like we never actually get to the, to the end point of our values, but rather it's a way of living and being in the world. And where this comes in with relationships is a lot of times people talk about values in terms of what is the type of par partner that I want as opposed to what is the type of partner I want to be. And when we shift to that perspective of what do I want to embody in a partnership, then we're living our values as opposed to the, the sort of trying to find someone out there that's the partner that you want. That's important too. But I think that you're more likely to have the partner that you want when you are the partner that you want to be. I so agree with that. So how do you help people get clear around their values? Yeah, well, there's, there's oftentimes people are coming into therapy because they're struggling with something. And so one way to actually access your values is to look at what's most painful to you, which is an interesting paradox. So if you were to think about um, in that example with your dad, Sandy, it's probably painful there was painful experiences associated with that time of your dad having a mental illness, right? What were the values that showed up for you behind in, in that time? Or what did you learn about what you care about from having gone through that, that experience? I definitely valued my own mental health and the ability to understand others because I felt my father really had a very 
narrow lens that he saw the world through. So he never really understood me. The value of self-regulation comes up for me. It's there's this ability to work through challenges um, as opposed to being completely overtaken. Yeah. So self-regulation, the ability to be present during challenges, really caring about taking care of your mental health. These, these values actually surface for us often at a time, times when we're experiencing pain. Because if you think about anything that's important to you that you've pursued in your life, there was probably some pain associated with it because we hurt where we care, as Steve mm -hmm. Hayes, who's one of the founders of ACT would say, we hurt where we care. And so one way to, to be able to uncover your values is looking at where do I hurt? <laughs> oh, that's where I care. And that actually can be really helpful when we're hurting because if we can tap into our values when we're hurting, then we actually have some footing. Like, okay, now I know what's important to me here and that's how I wanna be in the world. But another angle is to look at where you feel energized, where you feel a sense of flow in your life, and where it feels like um, sort of effortless effort, which is this, this concept of oftentimes I'm, when I'm listening to clients, I, I, I kind of am like a values highlighter. I look at them light up, or I look at, gosh, when they're engaging in this in the world in this way, their heart gets open, they feel energetic, they feel fed. So values are very intrinsically motivating. And we've, many of us have grown up in a society that's all about extrinsic motivators. So things like grades or money or getting the right job and the career and the house. But values are intrinsically motivating in that they have sort of a depth to them of knowing this really feeds me at the soul level. And so that's another way to access your values. And uh, it, can be, it can be both. And it's a really fun exploration once you start to explore your values because building a values aligned life is one where you sort of drop this idea that I'm a work in progress and you start to embody the state of I am a life in process. And just like tuning a guitar I'm going to get out of tune with my values sometime, but I can always tune back in and realign myself in the different important domains of my life. Just like you tune up the different strings of a guitar, you can tune up your values for yourself through your actions, really. And that's great. I, I'm a life in process. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love this kind of work because one of the, one of the catalysts to my divorce was that I was living completely out of alignment. And it worked for a while because I had a good way of surviving. I was good at that. And then the cost became too great for me and it didn't work anymore. And the process of who I became after my divorce had a lot to do with values. It, it was me tapping back into what were the parts of me that I had to reclaim the parts that got lost along the way. And that's how I became a coach. It was like, I love helping people. I feel in flow when I'm working with people. I, I'm intuitive. I get it. I'm, I've got a lot of common sense. I'm grounded. I have a lot of these skills already. Let me go get training. Because that was a part of me that I knew back in high school. And it was in my yearbook. <laughs> so it's, it's those values come back and they, they're really a part of us that we just kind of cover up for a long time. 
And uh, this year was a perfect example of being a little bit out of alignment where I took on a job as a part-time teacher of high school art. And art is a big part of my life. I'm an artist and I focus more on coaching. And I said, well, let me get back into art and let me give kids the chance to be creative. But I also said, I don't want to just be an art teacher. I want to be an art teacher and a coach. And I want to be able to use both because when kids are creating, they're very open and flowy. And so it's, it's a safe space for them to open up. And that's been my favorite part of the job. The art part where I'm sitting around watching kids draw and paint and it's beautiful to watch. It doesn't excite me as much as the coaching part. And so I'm not coming back next year. <laughs> um, and it was, it was disruptive. It was hard to go to that job and then come back to my coaching job. But it was an experiment. And I did it to see how it would go. And there was a lot of good. But I also know myself well enough to know that I'm not as much in flow with that work as I am with the coaching work that I do for my clients. Yeah, that's, that's flexibility right there. And that's a beautiful example of flexibility in the sense that, um, you know, when I am a yoga teacher, and actually, when I was in graduate school, when I was in my PhD program, I got so out of aligned with my values, I dropped off, I dropped out, I did come back. But I, I, I sort of at that time, it's like, oh, this is injured for me. So I'm just going to cut this off. But actually what I ended up doing is healing it through, through my own psychological flexibility practice to be able to return to school and be in, in alignment with my values, right? Just as you're talking about that sort of adjusting, sometimes the, the string breaks like in a divorce, like this string is done. I need a new string. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's just a subtle tune, right? So you're the one that knows. And values are personal and chosen. And you are the only one that knows what your values are. They are not morals or shoulds or rules. And being psychologically flexible, going back to yoga, is sort of like learning a balance pose. If people like to do yoga or a sport, you're going to fall. But what if, you know, that falling is actually part of learning? how to live your values. So the falling is that you have to be able to take the risk of balancing and the risk of falling in order to find your balance. And that's really what you're describing with this coaching example of like, hey, I tried it out, I figured I, I listened in and then I got realigned. And, and now you probably even have a deeper appreciation for your coaching work because you, you did this. So you come back with a fresher perspective on sometimes we get you know stale with our jobs and we need to try something else out and then come back to it and actually appreciate more of what we're doing. I'm, not, I'm sure you have always felt good about the coaching, but it's a perfect example of flexibility. And it's also a perfect example of one of the six core processes, which is committed action. And in our book, when Debbie and I wrote this book together, Debbie's the co-author of the Act Daily Journal with me, we go through each one of these six core processes in a, a, a program where you learn them through journaling and through exercises. And the chapter on committed action, we titled Falling on Purpose. And we titled that because actually a lot of times our commitment and doing our commitment through action is being willing to open up and fall, but continuing to get up again and pursue what matters to us. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's risk in exploring outside of our comfort zone and you can't know 
a lot of times until you do. And it's not the like, life is over. I tried this. Oh my God, I'm a failure. That's where a lot of people go with their stories, right? It's, I, I couldn't cut it. I, you know, I can't, I don't, I won't. And being willing to, again, be that outside observer. Let's see what, what does this look like? I know also that in this work that I did this year, I was able to help a lot of these students with anxiety and stress and to believe in themselves as an artist when they never thought they could. And one of them said to me, she was working her week, she had physical therapy and she would never do it on an art day. And she said, and she's one, she's one of the kids who did not come in thinking she could, had, had any talent whatsoever. And she said, you're teaching us much more than art. You're teaching us life skills. And I wish more teachers would do that. Mm-hmm. And I never had that kind of adult in my life as a teenager. And so it, it was work that was very worthwhile. It just doesn't light me up in the same way. So I, I can appreciate the contribution and the contribution the kids made to my life as well. And that's such a moment where you were living your values of coaching, even though you weren't in the domain of coaching. Yeah. Right? So when we get clear on our values, our domains don't necessarily have to change. We can live that value right here, right now in the, in the life that I'm in. So I can live the value of the type of partner that I want to be as I'm looking for a partner, mm-hmm. right? And I can live my value of, of being a compassionate guide and coach when I'm working with children, right? It doesn't have to be only in this, this coaching domain. And then what starts to happen, and that's a good example, Sandy, I think of someone seeing you in your values, when you are aligned, people want to be around that. Mm-hmm. They, you, you, are, you are bright, you're engaged, you're aligned, you're clear when you are in your values. And so people want to be with other people that are like manifesting, you know, the best versions of themselves, which mm-hmm. is, which really is their values. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious about you going back into your program, your psychology program. What was, what changed for you? You were saying that you're a yoga teacher and you balance, but I'm, I, I'd love to hear a little more about the experience that brought you back. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because I went to go study, um, my PhD was in eating disorders. And I had actually recovered from anorexia Mm. before going on to study eating disorders. And my commitment to myself before I left was I am going to make my, my recovery, my priority. And uh, what happened for me in my first year of my uh, program was that I needed to keep that commitment to myself because the competitive environment and the stress of the program. And then also I was out of alignment with my values of what I wanted to study because it was a very evidence-based rigid uh, kind of CBT program. And a lot of my recovery came from my own spirituality, my own practice of yoga. I had studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, a Buddhist monk. The part of my recovery was going to study with him. And so when I went, when I, when I took that pause, I got really clear that that needed to be part of what I was going to study so that I was more aligned. And so when I went back to my program, I was very direct and said, if I'm going to come back, 
I want to study mindfulness and acceptance-based approaches within the field of evidence-based therapy. I'll, I'll fit the program and I value evidence-based and sort of science-informed psychology. I value that. And I also want it to be also life-informed and incorporate these things. And I ended up um, doing a, a mentorship with Deborah Safer at Stanford and incorporating a um, treatment that, that uses acceptance and some of these more, uh, I would say, Eastern principles into uh, Western psychology. So that for me, that, that, spring, that string, string breaking actually was the very thing that helped me get clear on how I want to be in the world. And my life has been many iterations of that. Like I, I you know, just like a, with a musician that, that tunes up a guitar, there's a few things we notice about that. One is that when the musician tunes, we give them time to do it. And we don't judge it. We're just like, oh, yeah, you need to tune up. We're all waiting for you. You can take the time you need because we know the music's going to be better if you're in tune, right? So giving myself time to get clear and tune into what matters to me and to tune up on a regular basis. But the other thing is that we don't judge a musician for having a guitar that's out of tune. It's just sort of part of the process of life. Like guitars get out of tune just from sitting around the room. And so that's also, you know, I think practicing and what I'm really interested also in now is this concept of self-compassion and, and how to, to not judge ourselves for being out of tune, but actually see these as opportunities to, to continue to move closer and closer to how we want to be in the world. Thank you for sharing that story. And the word self-compassion kept coming up for me as you were talking, because I can really hear how you were kinder to yourself and you came back with clarity of here's what I want, here's what works for me, and how can I make it work in this program by bringing more of who I am into it which I love. I mean, I'm all about that. Like, you know, designing an art class based on coaching, you know, it's like I used to teach, teach workshops that were coaching based art workshops for people with guided meditations and just trying to bring parts of your life together. I think it's, a, it's a really important thing. If you are so in tune with your own values, it's really hard to not do that anymore. You become so conscious of that out of tune guitar and uh, I play guitar too. So I, I totally get it. And, uh, you know, watching my son go through this cause he's, he's a guitar player, but he's, he's 30 now and he's become very aware of his values. And he's, he's very in touch with when he's out of alignment, he knows how to go and take time for himself and meditate. And when he hasn't done his yoga, at night or his meditation for a few days, he's completely out of whack. And he'll say, I know what I need right now. I need to go to my room. I need to do this. I need to go downstairs and, and go on the inversion table and hang upside down because my back hurts. And then he has people at work whose backs hurt and complain all the time. Oh, I'm so old. I'm 24 and I'm falling apart. And they're not doing anything about it. And he's like, I've got all these tools, you know? And so I love I love when people take care of themselves and say, okay, I understand that if I don't take care of this, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. And I think that example is, Sandy, is probably another good one, which is you lived your values in raising the sun. I can tell that about you, like, you know, <laughs> and it's being manifested in him. 
and it spreads. So this isn't just about like the small me, but it's also about the fact that we are much more interconnected and much more an ecosystem than we think that we are, right? And uh, that when you start living your values and you model that to the people around you, they wanna do that too. And it's not about competition anymore, which was that model of graduate school that was making me really sick, but it's more about interconnectedness and about collaboration and not about a scarcity mindset, but really about a mindset of that we can all benefit if everyone is living in their values and aligned with what they care about, we all benefit and we feed positivity onto each other. So from parent to child, from, from you to your coworkers, from you to your partner, we can support each other in taking the time for ourselves to tune up, but also giving each other time to tune up and seeing that as a real positive strength, just like self-compassion is a real positive strength that we can have. And actually the research suggests we perform better when we practice self-compassion. Yeah, for sure. And I see it also in dating. A lot of people have the approach to dating as, oh, it's going to be a waste of my time if it's the wrong person. And if you can bring this mindset that you just shared to the dating process of, I'm sitting in front of a new person, I am going to learn about them, I'm going to come in and be present, have that beginner's mind have a perspective taking, like really bring your values, bring who you are to the date and whatever happens, it's going to either add value to your life, add value to their life. And you're going to learn something in the process. It's never a waste of time. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. Whenever I cook, I love listening to music from the 70s, like The Grateful Dead and Crosby, Stills and Nash and my favorite, Joni Mitchell. With Amazon Music Unlimited, I can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. And you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any device, whether it's your smartphone or tablet, your PC or your Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Now, for a limited time, you can get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 90 days. Just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to claim this offer. Quick plug for the last process that we haven't talked about. So we've yeah. talked about being present. We've talked about perspective taking. We've talked about values. We've talked about committed action towards your values. We've talked about accepting and opening up to difficult sensations. But the sixth one is our minds. And our mind is going to show up on that date. Even if you're aligned with your values and your heart, I can guarantee you that your mind will pack its bags and it'll have a lot of things to say. And the nature of the mind is that it doesn't like to be controlled and it can be quite distracting and it can be quite loud and it can say all sorts of crazy stuff. But we can get the way that I did that goggles exercise with you with our self story, we can start to get a little bit of space from our thoughts too and start to say, oh, thanks mind. I'm more, I'm not living from my, from my head. Sometimes my mind has helpful things to say and when it does, and when those things align with what I care about, I will water those seeds. I will pay attention to it. I will create the positive neuroplasticity of letting my mind linger on thoughts 
that align with my heart. But when my mind says things like self-critical thoughts about me or judgmental thoughts or is um, rigid and rule-based, I'm going to listen more to my heart <laughs> and I'm going to act from there. So I think being psychologically flexible is being able to get out of our heads, getting into our hearts, and then moving our hands and our feet in the directions that align with how we want to be in the world. And that builds a fulfilling and enriched life. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy, but it's also something that can feed back to you and something that we can get better at over time. I love it. Practice. Yeah, and that goes back to trying to control those thoughts. You know, it's like the elephant in the room, you keep not trying not to see it or whatever. It's like, you know, and I, I love the idea of, of taming the critical thoughts instead of deleting the critical thoughts. They're going to show up. They're hardwired in us. And, you know, a lot of stuff has been going on for decades in our brains. And to think that we can just eradicate everything at once is what stops a lot of people from forward movement. Yeah. So I love the idea of just acceptance and go back into your heart. If your brain is trying to control and be critical and judgmental, mm -hmm. sink back into your heart. So I can see how all these steps are very interrelated and make perfect sense to me. I, I think they're really, really powerful. What can you share that will help people to move forward in their own psychological flexibility in their relationships and their dating life, what are some specific steps they can take right now? Yeah. Well, I think about, I'm interested in ACT daily. So <laughs> yes, ACT in your daily life, that's the title of our, our work. And when you really boil it down, A-C-T, A can stand for accepting. So opening up and allowing right now, what's happening in this present moment, can I just practice acceptance? And then C, can stand for caring. What do I care about in this moment? What's most important to me in this moment? And then the T can be about taking a tiny step. So a tiny move in the direction of what you care about. Tiny moves are much more sustainable than big moves. Sometimes we need to make big ones, but <laughs> tiny moves are sustainable and those create uh, values rich habit loops for ourselves that build over time. So ACT or ACT can be accept, care and take action. And if for folks that want to learn more about these six core processes, they take, you know, there's a lot there. It's, this isn't like a simple <laughs> thing. It's simple, but it's also not. Yes. <laughs> and there's decades of research behind this model. So for folks that want to learn about how to apply it to their daily lives, the ACT Daily Journal can be a really great resource because it is the, the nuts and bolts of ACT, but applied to you. And you can find that on my website where under book. And then I also have on my website, I've talked a little bit about these body-based practices. I also have um, body-based practices for being psychologically flexible, which is I'm, I'm always interested in this intersection between neuroscience and embodiment and modern psychology. And so you can find those at drdianahill.com. Awesome. Well, this has just been such an enlightening conversation, really enjoyable. I felt a... I felt alive. <laughs> I felt like my values were being honored during this conversation. So I, I really appreciate you and the work you're doing. It is so valuable. So thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. It's great to be here. And 
I wish you the best, Sandy, and your psychologically flexible life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you love our show, please rate and review us. It means a ton for the success, the continued success of our show. And we hope you go on your last first date very soon. 